It is great to start talking about the 13 principles of faith. We haven't discussed this subject in a while, and it's great to be back. And just a brief overview of where we are in the 13 principles. Back in the day when we started talking about 13 principles, we talked about how they are broken down into three general subjects. These 13 principles, they are the bedrock of what we believe. They are the foundation of Jewish faith. All of our belief is built on top of these 13 principles as codified to us by the Rambam. And they fall into three general categories. We have the first five that talk about God. What does it mean when we say the Jews believe in God? What exactly does it mean? The Rambam breaks it down into five general principles. The next part of these 13 principles is the concept of Torah. So, of course, Torah, that demands the concept of prophecy and mosaic prophecy and the divinity of Torah and the fact that the Torah is unchangeable. And those four, those four principles, they comprise the middle section of the 13 principles. And now we are going to begin with principle number 10 which is the first of the final four principles, which generally refer to reward and punishment. Principle number 10 that we're going to discuss today is the idea of the omniscience of God. God knows everything. And number 11 that we'll get to, please God, soon, is the general concept of reward and punishment. Number 12 is Messiah, which refers to reward and punishment, the ultimate reward and punishment in this world where the world gets fixed and the world is brought to its utopian vision, so to speak, outlined in the genesis, so to speak, of creation. And finally, principle number 13 is the concept of resurrection in Olam which is the ultimate reward, not in this world or in this iteration of existence, but in a different kind of existence in Olam So these four things all relate to reward and punishment. And the first of this final group is the concept of God's omniscience. He knows all, but not only that does he know all, but it matters to him, it's important to him, meaning that it triggers a reaction. The concept of reward and punishment is that a person with their free choice behaves in a given way, and the Almighty knows what the person did, and therefore he treats him, so to speak, commensurate to his behavior, commensurate to the input, so to speak, of man, comes the output from God. God treats a person relative to their behavior. The Almighty is not apathetic to human behavior. Our deeds influence how he behaves, how he treats us. So the whole concept of reward and punishment hinges on principle number 10. The Almighty has complete knowledge. The Almighty is omniscient. He knows everything, nothing is hidden from him, and that also matters. He cares, he is concerned, so to speak, about what happens, he doesn't ignore what happens, and therefore, the choices that we make affect how he treats us. So the Rambam, in his actual words describing this principle, tells us as follows, Hashem Isbarach, the Creator, Yodeya Ma'asem Shel Bnei Adam, he knows the deeds of humans. Now it's interesting, the Rambam frames this as the Almighty's knowledge of the deeds of humans. In truth, the Rambam elsewhere tells us that the Almighty knows the deeds of everything. Of plants, if a plant sways, if a dog barks, everything that happens in the world, in the galaxies, everywhere, in all of existence, 
the Almighty knows it all, but for this subject, he's focusing only on the fact that he knows the deeds of humans. He doesn't ignore it, meaning the deeds matter. His knowledge of it is something which is important because he's concerned about it. It determines, so to speak, his behavior. Continues the Rambam. What is the other side of this argument? Because again, we're already accepting as a given the first five principles that God exists. So on top of the idea that God exists and God is all-powerful, we also have to have this principle that God is omniscient. There is a belief, says the Rambam, that says or that posits, that postulates that God does exist, but he doesn't know everything that's happening. In fact, there's a verse in scripture that describes the other side of this equation, meaning the side of the heretics, that says, Azav Hashem Esa'aretz, God does exist, but he abandoned the world. He doesn't care about humans. He's off to bigger and better things. That is a viewpoint of some of the heretics. And in order to present our position and to oppose that, we have this 10th principle, namely that God is omniscient, knows all, and it matters to him. And it quotes a different verse in Jeremiah, God that the mighty is wondrous in purpose and indeed. His eyes are open, he sees all, all the ways of mankind. So we have this idea that God knows everything. And then the Ramam is going to introduce two verses, two more verses, to indicate that this knowledge is going to be translated in the Almighty's behavior towards us. He's going to bring one verse from Parsha's Beratius, we read a couple of weeks ago, Genesis chapter 6, and one verse from our Parsha, Genesis chapter 18, relative to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the verse in Genesis chapter 6? Vayara Hashem ki This is in the prelude to the flood, before the flood, when the mighty, so to speak, cleans ship, cleans house, starts from scratch. The mighty sees that the deeds of mankind are corrupted. And therefore he says, okay, as a result of that, we're going to cleanse, we're going to clear out all the people, and we'll start from scratch with a new a new world starting with Noah. That's an example of this principle. And from our parsha, we read how the Almighty tells Abraham, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and therefore, let us overturn this city. And these verses tells the Rambam, they indicate this 10th principle. Number one, the Almighty has total knowledge of the deeds of mankind, and number two, that he has interest. It matters to him, so to speak, the deeds of mankind. They matter and they trigger responses. Now, it's interesting, some of the commentaries note that the Hebrew word for knowledge is dat, which means to know, knowledge, you know something. But that word also means you care about something. It matters to you. You're connected, so to speak, to that thing. For example... When it talks about Adam and Eve procreating, it says, Adam knew his wife. There's a connection between those two. It matters. And thus, this concept really is really these two points that God knows everything and it matters to him are really both encapsulated, so to speak, in the word that God has knowledge. He's Yodea. He knows and he cares about what happens in this world. There's total awareness, total understanding of all that happens and the Almighty, so to speak, invested, so to speak, in 
humanity in this world. He cares. He is interested. There's a connection between God and this world, and therefore our deeds, they contribute, they engender, they trigger responses. And in fact, if you look at the verses the Raman brings, they're both verses that indicate knowledge of human behavior, but ones that spurred action. The body knows that the people are sinning, and therefore he brings the flood. The body knows, is aware that Sodom and Gomorrah is corrupt, and therefore he overturns those cities. Now, it's interesting to me that at this juncture, or at least in this principle, he's not necessarily talking about a, a, the Almighty's treatment of the Jewish people. Think about it. Both examples of brings, both of them, are ones referring to non-Jews. You know, before the times of Noah, there wasn't even a Jewish people. And, of course, Abraham is privy to the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they don't happen to him. It's interesting to me, the Rambam chose to bring these examples because this, or at least in this principle, there is no distinction between the oversight of Jews versus the oversight of everyone else. You know, he could have brought verses from the whole Torah. The whole Torah has this idea. If you behave well and you follow the rules of God and you obey his mitzvot and statues and dicta, he will do good to you. It's the same principle. But the Rambam wants to find a more universal verse to this idea because this is not limited to the divine oversight of the Jewish people. It is a universal principle. This is how God operates in his world. There is a distinction, as we perhaps will see as we further discuss and study this principle, there's a distinction between how God treats the Jews, so to speak, the chosen people, and everyone else, but not in this particular point of this principle. Now, it's important to remember, when we talk about God's knowledge of what happens in this world, in this universe, there is comprehensiveness of knowledge. Every little thing, not just the generalities, the trend, the zeitgeist. It's every single specific event, everything that happens. Everything that happens, God has total knowledge of that. In fact, the Rambam, when he talks about this concept when addressing the the principles of Jewish philosophy and theology, he explains the theological basis of God's total omniscience. He says every creation, everything, from all the galaxies and the cosmos and the constellations to a lowly fruit fly, to a mosquito, they are all creations of God. And they only exist so long as the money wills them to exist. They completely rely on God for their existence. They have no independent existence outside of the Almighty willing them to exist. And therefore, the Almighty knows himself and consequently he knows everything. Meaning because everything depends on God, hinges on God, gets its vitality from God, Nothing is severed from him, and therefore his knowledge of himself, so to speak, that mandates that he has total, absolute knowledge of everything. And it's interesting that in our principle, the Ramam does not demand that we believe that, because he's not talking about animals. In the concept of theology, so to speak, God's knowledge extends even to the animals, even the lowly fruit flies and mosquitoes. But relative to our subject, he's talking only about man, 
But in principle, this idea that God knows everything extends to everything. Now, as an aside, when we talk about judgment, judgment, we say, is only possible to be done by God. Because only God can be a fair judge. Only God can take into account everything. The motivations of someone in their deed, the background, the history. You know, they say never judge a, a man when they're hungry or tired. Because they behave in a way that is out of character. We can't do that. Like if you're a judge, you can't take into account all those details. Everything, of course, is also relative. So, for example, listen to this. We're told in our sages that if someone does a mitzvah, they get reward. And that's, of course, the subject of the next principle, that they have reward and punishment. But as a general rule, we know, you do a mitzvah, you get reward. Well, how much reward do you get? So the sages tell us that if you do a mitzvah, you get, let's say, one unit of reward. But if you do that identical mitzvah in a time that it's very difficult for you to do, it's painful for you to do it. The reward for that mitzvah done in pain is a hundred X, a hundred times that same identical mitzvah done without any pain in a pain-free environment. Moreover, as they just tell us, that's referring only to a small pain, a small inconvenience. But what if it's very, very difficult for you to do a given mitzvah? Then it's not a hundred times a standard version of that mitzvah. It's a hundred times a painful version of that mitzvah, namely 10,000 times more valuable and more reward for a mitzvah that really has a lot of pain inherent in it. That is the reward for that kind of mitzvah over that same identical deed done when it's easy. Meaning, what our sages are telling us, that someone could do the identical mitzvah and the reward that the Almighty meets out, doles out to that person as compensation, so to speak, for that reward, there is 10,000 degrees of judgment possibility for a given mitzvah. Similarly, if it's a sin, they might take into account all the factors and judges every deed in the precise, just way for that particular deed, taking into account everything. And thus, when we say that God is the only one who could judge, this is what we mean. Because God's knowledge is absolutely comprehensive, only he can factor in all the details of a deed to be able to judge it fairly. It's possible for two people to do the identical action and for one, it's a mitzvah. For the other, it's a sin. For Moshe to hit the rock that emits water and gives water to the whole nation, for him, it's a sin. If I were to do that, I imagine it would be a great mitzvah. It would be a great Kiddush Hashem, a great sanctification with God's name. Whereas when Moshe did the identical deed, he was told, you don't believe in God. So this is, again, important. We see how important it is to believe this principle that the mighty knows everything. If someone does not believe that God knows everything, we're told in the Ram of the Laws of Repentance, chapter 3, law number 7 and 8, 
Such a person who says, Ein The creator does not know the deeds of humans. Ein lo is cut out of eternity, cannot have a portion in Olmaba. Now, this idea appears elsewhere in Jewish literature. So, for example, in Pirkei Avos, Chapters of the Fathers, Chapter 2, Mishnah number 1, we are told that if you recognize that God knows everything, that's a very helpful tactic to avoid sinning. The Mishnah tells us, Look, examine, visualize three things, and you will never sin. What do you have to see? What do you have to imagine? You have to know what's above you. There is a seeing eye, a listening ear, and all your words are inscribed in a heavenly ledger. This idea that the mind knows everything we're doing, that's very helpful if we want to develop fear of God, fear of sin, if we want to make sure that our deeds are proper and we don't behave out of the line, if we recognize that he knows everything. And I do something, it matters, it's inscribed in this heavenly ledger, it can never be erased without, of course, repentance. Everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I even think, the Talmud tells us that thoughts of sin are sometimes even worse than sins themselves. When you realize that, you're constantly being scrutinized. Well, that means that you better make sure that your behavior is proper. My father told me, that his father told him when he was a little kid, the first thing he told him is this Mishnah. Everything that you do is being watched by God. Everything that you say, the Almighty hears. Everything that you think, the Almighty knows. And it's all recorded for posterity. There's no forgetfulness in the eyes of God. I feel like it's helpful to have surveillance states this idea that every transaction that you make is seen by the IRS and the government and there's cameras everywhere and the walls have ears. These are all helpful for us to understand what life is really all about. There's no way to hide, to hide from God. He has complete comprehensive knowledge of everything. And if we embrace this principle, not only is it a 13, you know, one of the 13 principles of faith, but it's also quite helpful if we want to make sure that our behavior is in line with what is proper and desirous. And by the way, there's a there's a pleasant side to this. If someone does even the most minor mitzvah, notwithstanding their general character overall, someone could be a terrible, horrific sinner, inaccurate in general, but every mitzvah, that they do, no matter how slight or minor it may be relative to their general character, nevertheless, that is valued and cherished and will grant them reward. The Talmud tells us in the book of Abakama, page 38b, The mind does not withhold, deprive, reward for any deed done by any creation. And he gives an example from our Parsha. It talks about the two daughters of Lot. They were sure the whole world was destroyed. And they believed that there's only one man alive to repopulate the world with. And that was their dad. And they both slept with their dad in our Parsha. 
And they both named their sons who were subsequently born to them, Moab, meaning from my father, and Ben-Ami means from my nation, says the Talmud, because the older daughter of Lot gave a more vulgar name to her son, Moab, from my father, kind of really acknowledging the incest involved here. Therefore, when that nation that was spawned from that child, the nation of Moab, when the Jewish people had to navigate passage or had to encounter them because there was some vulgarity to this, the Almighty said to them, well, don't make war with them because we need this nation. The nation will eventually produce Ruth, the forbearer of David and the Messiah. You can't make war with them, but you can oppress them. You can enslave them. You can suppress them. Whereas the other son, the other, the son born to the younger daughter, who is called more modestly Ben-Ami and is the father of the nation of Ammon, to them we're told that we cannot make war with them and we cannot incite them and we cannot cause them any pain whatsoever. The gentleness of character, the modesty of the great-great-great-grandmother actually yielded a benefit many generations hence. So that's the basic idea of this principle. The Almighty knows everything. Nothing is hidden from Him. Everything that we do matters. The behavior of people matter. They trigger responses. We have free will. And we have the ability to prompt a divine reaction. So there's something really heartening about this. We say that uh, lives matter. All lives matter. You've heard that. Human lives matter. That's what this is, what part of this idea is. Animals don't matter. They're like the scenery. They're the arena. They are not consequential. But humans are consequential. We matter and we can affect how the Almighty interfaces with the world. He knows our deeds and he knows he cares about our deeds. We have a relationship with the Almighty. That's the general idea of this principle. But if we probe it, we find some really interesting things. We go a little bit deeper. There are some very interesting and intriguing aspects of this principle that are worthy of us to ponder. So the Ram told us that we have to believe that God knows everything, unlike the heretics who say that God abandoned the earth. Remember, this is referring to people who believe in a creator. There is a creator, but he is off to other things. There's an all-powerful, almighty creator, but the heretics believe, or some of the heretics believe, that he went off to do other things. So why they believe that and how do we respond to their claims, that's one subject that we have to ponder. Another question that is commonly asked, and this is something we've spoken about in the past, but it's still worthy to revisit, is the relationship of God's complete comprehensive knowledge to free will. How can we have free will? How can future events be in our hands when the Almighty knows everything, both past, present, and of course, even future? How is God's knowledge, so to speak, different than our knowledge? And how does that preclude determinism? That's another subject we have to ponder. And finally, the general subject of 
understanding that God treats us relative to our behavior, the idea of divine oversight, divine providence, and the various layers of that, that too is included under the rubric of this principle. And of course, we'll probably talk about other things as well. And as we mentioned earlier, some of these themes we've discussed in the past, but we're going to try to, of course, as we always do, expand and present different angles on these very important philosophical and theological subjects. So the Rambam, when he brings this principle, he brings the common contrary view of the heretics. There is a view of the heretic that says God exists, God created, but he abandoned the land. He doesn't really know what's happening here anymore. Now, normally, the Rambam does not bring to us, when he talks about the 13 principles, he doesn't bring us the contrary view. He doesn't bring us the view of the heretics. Oh, we believe this and not that what the heretics believe. Normally, the way he does it, the way he lays out the principle, is that you focus on what we believe and we ignore, we don't really discuss the subject or or the position of the heretics. And in fact, the law states that heresy is something that we want to distance ourselves from and not even study it with the with the goal of disproving it. The Ram tells us the laws of idolatry chapter two, halacha number two, that the idol worshippers have lots of books and lots of explanations of how to worship the idols and what are its deeds and how does it operate. But we are commanded by God to not read those books and to not think about them and not to consider them, not them, and not anything relates that relates to it. We are told, we're instructed to avoid heresy, to not study it at all. And somehow, with respect to this principle, apparently there isn't this concern. The Ram tells us not to believe what the heretics believe, but he does inform us what the heretics actually believe. So I saw in a book called Das Emuna, which is a book that I use to study the 13 principles on a very deep level or very comprehensive level. He points out that this idea of the heretics, that they say that God abandoned the earth, is actually featured in scripture in Ezekiel chapter 8. And it's also entertained more broadly in the book of Job. So evidently, this particular form of heresy is not problematic for us to be aware of, to entertain, and to discuss. Now, the Ram says something really interesting. This is really going to open up our discussion into this principle. The Ram says, why do people believe this? If you think about it, we we know that there are heretics. Don't believe in God. That form of heresy we are aware of. There are heretics that believe in God, but they say the Torah is maybe not so the authoritative canon or the authoritative manual, maybe there's other manuals, maybe there is no manual. But this kind of heretic is really strange. Someone believes in God. God created the whole world. God is all-powerful. But there's a limitation in his power. He doesn't know what's actually happening here in this world. He abandoned the land. It's a very strange position to take. It's kind of a half-heresy. It's not a full heresy. Why would someone adopt that 
viewpoint. Why would someone believe in an omnipotent creator who somehow does not know what's actually happening in his creation? God abandoned the earth. So the Ram explains that the reason why someone would take this position, the reason why someone would try to really take contradictory positions is because they look at the world and they see Apparently, there is a lack of order. There's disorder in the world. There's bad things happening to good people. And there's good things happening to bad people. The world is chaotic. The results are not connected to the inputs. People do good things and they get a bad result. People do bad things and they get a good result. Judgment is corrupted. If judgment is corrupted, say the heretics, it must mean that the Almighty is actually not judging or the Almighty is not aware of all the details. He doesn't know that this person is a bad person and that's why there is this glitch in the system where the bad person gets a good result. If there's no divine oversight, there's no divine knowledge, there's no divine judgment, that would explain why we see an apparent lack of fairness in the world. God must have disengaged from the world, otherwise the lack of fairness would not exist. These people, they surveyed the world, and they looked at what happens in the world, and they determined that there's no way that this is fair. And therefore, the only result is that it must be that God is no longer controlling what happens here. He's moved on to other things, to bigger and better things. And that explains the disorderly and chaotic world that we see here. That's the explanation of the Rambam, why people have this opinion. And of course, we say that this is total heresy. Someone like this gets booted from Olam Abba. But the Rambam says something really interesting. He says they made a poor trade-off. To avoid one theological problem, these people have adopted a much bigger problem. We have a hard time understanding what happens in the world and why it happens and how come it has to be like this and how come good people are suffering and bad people are flourishing. That's a problem. But you know what's even a bigger problem? To question God's omniscience and God's omnipotence and God's oversight creates a much bigger problem. Says the Rambam, you've exchanged a small problem for a much larger one. And I was thinking, just as an example of this idea, sometimes people make very poor choices in trying to solve one problem and creating a worldview, a framework that actually has many more problems. So, for example, you know, there's parts of existence that are inexplicable to everyone. So, for example, for us, we're told that we cannot fathom God. God's infinite, and it's not possible for a finite little human pea brain to understand God. In fact, the name of God, the four-letter name of God, that hints at God's essence, we are not allowed to even utter that name. He's so far beyond us. 
It's so unfathomable. He's a qualitatively different form of existence that even his name is ineffable to us. That's a problem. That's something that we we don't understand. And therefore, the believer has to acknowledge some things, or at least one big thing, is beyond their comprehension. Well, so what's the way to solve this problem? If you're a non-believer, if you just obviate the need for God, then that resolves all your questions, right? That's the exchange of the heretics. But it turns out that not only have they not resolved the questions, they've exchanged one problem for a billion problems, for a trillion problems. If you think about it, if you want to cut God out, so to speak, of your worldview, how do you explain everything that exists? If there's no creator, where did it all come from? That's a question. You don't really have a good answer. Where did matter come from? Matter cannot create itself. Where does anything come from? Nothing can create itself. Oh, evolution! (laughs) That solves all our problems. Well, even that has to explain a trillion miracles, i.e. things that we can't understand. How come everything is so perfect? Where did the cell come from? You know, I was thinking recently, we're in Houston, in the Torch Center. And Houston's more like a city. But this whole region... It's the oil capital of the world, right? Where does petroleum come from? So we say the Almighty put it on the ground to help facilitate energy so the world can advance and progress. That's what we believe. What do the heritage say? Well, the heritage say, no, no, no. It's the it's the uh, decomposing dinosaurs. Decomposing dinosaurs. That's what, and pressurized, pressurized over millions and millions of years creates petroleum. Because again, petroleum is not something you could create. You can't really create petroleum. It's just there in the ground. You could discover it, pull it out, use it, refine it, but you can't create it. Well, where did it come from? Oh, it's the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs, they melted and they got underground and that created the oil. I was thinking, you know, how many dinosaurs were there? I was just thinking today, I did a, a Google search. How many barrels of oil are extracted from the ground every single day? Every single day, there are a hundred million barrels of oil extracted from the ground. Every two weeks, we're talking about a billion barrels of oil. And a barrel is, uh, I think, 42 gallons. There's so much oil. How many dinosaurs were there? <laughs> people actually, rational people actually believe that all this oil comes from dinosaurs that melted. People actually believe that. It's amazing. And, of course, it's it's just one of the million questions that they have to navigate. But I was just thinking about this recently. I'm like, how do people, rational people, intelligent people, logical people, you know, educated people, these are not these are not fools, and there's no way to explain it. You have to explain it. We have we have an answer. This is something that we have an answer to. Well, of course, the Almighty created everything, and He created petroleum as well. 
But this is just one of the many questions that we have to explain or that the heretics have to answer and they don't have an answer to it. They have to say like we do with God. We say God is ineffable. They say, well, oil is ineffable as well. We, we don't understand that. Well, where did the, uh, where did the cell come from? Where did the atoms come from? Where did the subatomic particles come from? Where does DNA come from? Every single cell. How many cells do you have? You have trillions and trillions of cells in your body. Every single cell contains within it around 3 billion, 3 billion with a B, protein bases that are spun together in the DNA. Not a single one of those protein bases can be created in a lab. Not even one. If you combine all the human ingenuity together, you can't do even one of them. And you have billions and billions of them in every cell that you have trillions and trillions and trillions of, of, of every aspect of creation. So perfect, so much design, so much purpose. Ingenuity, everywhere you see design, creation is evident before us. And thus, we have no question. There's not a single question that it raises. But to the heretics, they want to solve one problem, and they've just adopted so many more. The immune system, immunocompromised. Even someone who's immunocompromised. If If you had no immune system, you'd be dead before nightfall. You're constantly being attacked by all these malicious invaders and they all want to kill you and you don't even know anything about it. Maybe if you have a very aggressive attack, like a nuclear bomb coming after you, you'll have a slight hiccup. Oh, you'll you'll cough a little bit. That's the only evidence that you have, that you were attacked violently and maliciously by billions, the hordes and hordes of these little attackers coming after you to try to kill you. You have no idea about it. Well, now we know. You have an immune system. Who created that? There's so much design and purpose. And again, the believer, it's just more beauty. It's more awesomeness. It's more evidence of a creator. What do you say? It's an accident? It's chance? What did the non-believers do? What they say, I think what they say, I don't know, they have to come defend themselves. Something that you cannot create if you tried. If you took all the human ingenuity and engineering, you cannot produce a single fruit fly, not even one. And yet there are a trillion species in our planet. It's probably a lot more than that. And they're all procreating. Where did they all come from? More questions that the non-believer has. You know, the Ramah himself, he talks about this subject and he points out, this is something that many of the other sages pointed out as well. You know, you wonder what the Ramah would have told us if he knew what we know, because it's becoming harder and harder to be a heretic as we discover more and more of the design, the functionality, the purpose of creation. It's becoming harder and harder being squeezed into a a corner, a smaller and smaller corner of unreasonableness. But the Ram pointed out that if you look at the world in general, if it was random, you would imagine that there would be like an equal distribution of resources. But the truth is, says the Rambam, this is even, he pointed out that going back almost a thousand years, the truth is that there is a distribution of resources the things that we need most to survive are in abundance. And the things that we need least to survive 
are scarce. So oxygen. Oxygen is so plentiful. Wherever you go, you could breathe and you could survive. Because if you don't have it for four minutes, you're dead. And next in the list of things that you need is water. Well, also abundant, found everywhere. You need it. It's so vital for you that might put so much of it in the world. And the thing you need next is, well, that's food. And that's also abundant. Not quite as abundant as water and oxygen, but much more abundant than diamonds and pearls, all those things that you don't need that actually don't contribute towards your vitality. Those things are scarcer. So again, even with a primitive understanding of what the world's all about, not to say or to imply that the Rum had a primitive understanding of anything, but even a thousand years ago, we knew nothing really about how things actually work, just like we really know today nothing about how things actually work. What we know is just scratching the tip of the surface of the top of the iceberg. But even then, we could see purpose. Any child could see purpose in the world, and we see, again, purpose indicates a creator. Wherever you turn, you see purpose and design. And for all of us believers, it's not a question. It was all created by this one omnipotent God who is totally unfathomable to us lowly intellects. There's one thing that we have to rely on faith. There's one miracle, the idea of divinity. But you can solve that problem by changing the amount of unsolvable problems to billions and trillions. People actually still believe that species came from oh, mutations. There was just a there was a random change and and a billion and billion billion trillion random changes over millions and billions of years. You have us. There's zero evidence of new species being formed randomly. There's not a single bit of evidence to this. And this is the central claim of the heretics. There are now 7 billion humans. And we've seen no speciation of humans. On a species level, we are all uniform and able to procreate together. The whole thing is a myth. It's a myth. It's not true. But it's a very sticky lie. Do you know why it's sticky? Because it's the only way that people can have an alternative to faith. And there always has to be some alternative or else free will doesn't exist. And what do people say? Oh, you know what? There, there must be really smart professors and scientists and they all believe it and they must understand how it works. They have answers to all those questions. We have to remember those same empty arguments exist in the times of idolatry. Oh, why are we bowing down to sticks and stones? That is ridiculous and futile. Oh, don't you understand? They wrote books about it. They explained it all. There's deep meaning. and They understand. It makes tons of sense to them. The real geniuses out there, they know it all. It makes sense to them. And frankly, we kind of laugh at our ancestors who worshipped idols. That was ubiquitous and universal. And the truth is that the things that civilized, cultured, educated, worldly people, what we believe today is equally, maybe even more risible and delusional. We've exchanged one problem. It's not really a problem because that would be the design. 
you can't understand God, but that's the problem we've changed. That idea that we're precluded from understanding God is beyond the grasp of humanity, and we've changed that, or some of us have changed that for a worldview that makes zero sense whatsoever. Now, the Rambam, back to our original subject, the idea of bad things happen to good people and the kinds of problems in seeing the Almighty's, so to speak, hand overseeing the world, that is what caused the heretics to believe that God abandoned the world, as of Hashem How indeed do we respond to this? So the Rambam himself addresses it. And he says that people have a skewed, corrupt vision of what actually happens in the world. Most people think, says the Rambam, I thought this was exclusive to our generation. The Rambam says even in his times, people believe everything's so bad. Oh, things are so awful. Things are so terrible. Things are worse every day. People say that today. The Rambam tells us that even in his times, they used to say that. And he says that people in their poetry and in their songs, everything's so bad, oh, it's so awful, it's so terrible. It's like, it's interesting, you know, today in the, if you listen to it, like a comedian, it's always about how bad things are. Things are getting just worse and worse and worse. We have a tendency to just see the bad. So the Rambam has a whole essay on this, really long essay on why bad things happen. And he breaks them down into different categories. He says, almost everything that happens is good. And the things that are bad are very, very rare. And even amongst the rare things that are bad, most of those things you can't blame God for. So he says, there's some things that are just a result of nature. Based upon kind of the philosophical, theological principles, this world was created with a certain governing system we call nature. And that mandates that there's going to be a distribution of circumstances. Some people are going to be more intelligent. Some people are going to be more taller and shorter. There's going to be better circumstances for some, worst circumstances for others. And that's one version of bad that happens in the world, but that's exceedingly rare. That's not very common. But there is a version of bad things that's much more common, but not one that you can blame God for. That's bad caused by humans. Humans hurting other humans. There's war, there's theft, there's crime, there's homicide. Don't blame God for that. God didn't do that. Humans were endowed with free will. And they did it to themselves. And they did it to others and they did it to themselves. If a person, a third example, causes self-inflicted harm or loss, don't blame God for that. People blame God. For the harm that they did to themselves. Says the Ram, the majority of ills in the world are a result of what people do to themselves. They eat unhealthy. They don't take care of their body. And then they're shocked that they are not healthy. They get sick. The Ram tells us hundreds of years ago. Even mental illness, says the Ramam, is likely a product of poor physical health or allowing addiction to fester and get out of control. All the things that you need, you have. All the things that you don't need and you want and desire and covet and pursue. The luxuries that you don't need, you become addicted to them. The essentials are plentiful. 
all the extraneous stuff are scarce. You want them, and that causes you to go mad. The Ram's position on this, again, it's a vast subject. It's essentially the main subject of the book of Job. It's a huge subject. It's a complicated and difficult one. But the Ramam offers us a perspective that actually bad things are very, 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 very rare. And to use those extreme outlier situations where it's a bad thing that we could blame on God, to use that to justify the argument that God abandoned the world is ridiculous. I want to briefly discuss this subject on a more um, fundamental way. And in our next session, we're going to do a follow-up on this subject. We're going to read an amazing essay from the Ramchal in The Way of God, where he kind of surveys all the various reasons why bad things may happen to good people. But briefly, and we spoke about this in the past, in, in principle number two, going back a couple of years already now, in principle number two, we talked why bad things happen to good people. I want to revisit that briefly and maybe add some more stuff, but the subject that we'll talk about next time, the Ramchal's essay on this, kind of really going through the various different ways that the Almighty will treat someone, at least who in our view is, is righteous and, and just and good, a tzaddik, if you will, the Almighty will treat them poorly. There's a whole bevy of reasons why they may happen, and the Ramchal kind of outlines that in an amazing essay that I want to share with y'all next time. But let's quickly talk about what we spoke about last time, and we'll add a few uh, little tweets here and there. One of the general principles that our sages tell us about how to process what happens in this world is that we have to acknowledge the limited scope that we have, the limited viewpoint about what actually is going on in the world. You know, all of us, we could see in front of us, we can't see behind us. We could see in our room, or if we fly up, we can maybe see a little, a little picture, a little, a little bit of earth, but we can't see what's happening. I can't see what's happening in Florida right now. I could basically see my microphone, which I really like. It looks great. I can see the room I'm in in the torch center. I can see the chair I'm sitting on. But that's basically it. Yet, I'm somehow delusional enough to think that I can all about everything to know exactly what's fair and what's not fair. It's really ridiculous for someone to have the arrogance to think that they sh- they know. They know. They have all the data. They have all the information to be able to make a good call as to what is righteous and what is improper. And we see God doing things and it must be bad. Why would he do that? You don't know anything. You're an ignorant little fruit fly. Now, I'm talking to you. I'm saying me, Yaakov Volby, ignorant little fruit fly. You know nothing about nothing about nothing. Your vantage point of, of existence is such a tiny sliver, it's negligible. It's immaterial. You know, I think broadly, most of us, we think we really know what's happening in the world. We know, we understand life, we understand people. We have a grasp on what's happening in the world. None of us know anything. We're little ignorant fruit flies. I assume that anyone listening to the podcast, they've already shot off the podcast. I could say what I really think. All of us are little fruit flies. We know nothing. We're ignorant. If you're a prophet, you have a little window and so to speak to the divine way of seeing things maybe you know something then you can make a claim 
all of us, it's delusional to think that you know what's actually happening in the world and why God did what he did. And by the way, the Rambam, the Ramban tells us that this subject of us trying to understand why God does what he does, this subject is us trying to see the world from God's perspective. And that's something, you know, that you really can't, you really can't do. It's not possible. Only God can do that. And he points out that if you look at the canonical example of bad things happening to good people, it's the death of Rabbi Akiva. That's presented often as the paradigmatic example of an event that's so mysterious and so baffling to us. We can't understand it. And if you look at the three times where that is featured in the Talmud, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, in the book of Menachos, page 29b, in the book of Brachos, 61b, it tells us that when Moshe saw the death of Rabbi Akiva, he said, Zu Torah v'zu this is the Torah and this is its reward. Moshe couldn't understand it. And when the angels saw the death of Rabbi Akiva, they said, Zu Torah v'zu the angels couldn't understand it. And when Adam was shown ahead of time all the generations of existence, he made only one comment. When he saw Rabbi Akiva, Samach betoraso v'nisatze v'misaso. He was happy, he was joyous, he was delighted in Rabbi Akiva's Torah, and he was saddened in his demise. If Moshe, the greatest man who ever lived, Adam before his sin, essentially an angel. The angels themselves, if they can't understand it, it means that there's always going to be a realm that only God knows, and we, and nothing else besides for God, certainly not us simple fruit fly humans, of course, we can't understand, but even the angels, even Moshe, even Adam cannot understand. Nevertheless, it's imperative, the, Ram, the Ramban tells us, to try to understand as much as we can, or to at least see the contours of the, of the discussion, to see what we know and what we can know or we, what we cannot know. So maybe the death of Rabbi Kiva is beyond us, but what are some of the general parameters of how the Almighty interfaces with the world? We have to, of course, acknowledge that our ability to understand is limited. It's like if you, I heard this example, this analogy, if you were not a pilot and you had to fly a 747, you get into the cockpit and you're overwhelmed, there's a billion buttons. Which ones am I supposed to push? You don't know. You're ignorant. You haven't been trained. We don't know. We're ignorant. We have no idea. Someone once came to the Chazonish, was leader of world Jewry in 1950, that time of, you know, the, the middle of the 20th century. And there was a Holocaust survivor that came to him and said, the Almighty did terrible things and he did awful things in the Holocaust. So the Chazanish pulled out a Talmud and opened up to a random page and looked at one of the commentaries of Tosvos, one of the medieval commentators, and said to him, okay, explain to me this Tosvos. Explain it to me. And he tried to offer an explanation, but the Chazanish asked him a question. No, that, that explanation doesn't make any sense. So he tried again, but again he asked another question. 
the person finally admitted he doesn't understand this comment by the medieval sages on this piece of Talmud. If you can't understand the Tosvo, says the Chazanish, how do you expect to understand God? The Yemai's ways are beyond us. But nevertheless, we can try to understand a little bit of the framework of how he operates. So I think the the easiest version of trying to understand why bad things happen to good people is that sometimes we are shown how a bad thing, apparent bad thing, is really a good thing. So for example, you miss your plane, you miss your flight, that's a terrible thing. You're going to have to find a hotel, you're going to have to find some food, you're going to have to reschedule, you'll be late to your meeting, it's a terrible thing. Then you find out the plane crashed, well, in retrospect, it was the best that ever happened to you. And you'll be telling your grandkids about it for the rest of your life. So is missing the flight a good thing or a bad thing? So Sometimes we discover that you miss your flight, it's actually the best thing that ever happened to you in your whole life. There are times when the Almighty gives us a little peek into how he works and he shows us that the apparent bad things were actually very good things. And by the way, this appears all over the Torah. So for example, Chanoch, Enoch, he died young. Rashi says it was a good thing. Noah was barren for many years. He had children all at the age of 500. Normally it's a bad thing. In his case, Rashi tells us again, it was a very good thing. You want to look up the sources. Enoch is in Rashi in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. In that same chapter, chapter 5, verse 32, Rashi explains how Noah being barren was a very good thing. Oh, and Abraham dying young, chapter 25, verse 30, Rashi tells us that was a good thing for him. At the time, no one knew this. Noah is the age of, he's the age of 300, 200. He has no children. Everyone else has lots of children. Only later on can it be revealed that that was a really good thing. Isaac and Rebekah are barren. 20 years, they have no children. If you do the math, the just tell us that the 400-year timeline that the Exodus is going to happen 400 years after a certain event, that began with the birth of Isaac. Because in chapter 15 of Genesis, we read it this past week, God tells Abraham, your descendants, they will be enslaved for 400 years. Now, in reality, they were only in Egypt for 210 years. So where's the 400 years? So our sages tell us, Talmud tells us, that the clock started ticking from when Abram had descendants. Once Abram has descendants, so the whole path, the whole circumstances are already in motion to be able to, you know, Isaac will bear Jacob, etc. Eventually, they'll end up in Egypt and they'll be enslaved. So the clock starts ticking when Isaac is born. The fact that Isaac spent 20 years trying to conceive, what would have happened had Jacob been born 20 years earlier, the descent to Egypt would have been 20 years earlier, and the Holocaust that the nation endured in Egypt would have been 20 years longer. Thus, a 20-year 
delay, that benefited us tremendously. Laban switched Rachel with Leah. Terrible! You wanted to marry Rachel, you ended up with Leah. Awful. Well, think about it. Rachel was destined to be barren her whole life. That was the plan. But God remembered her. What did God remember? God remember how she gave the signs to her sister. And thus, Joseph was born. It was only thanks to the conniving trickery of Laban that Joseph exists. Oh, and by the way, the Jewish people descending to exile in Babylon, they stop off and pray at the grave of Rachel. And God heeds Rachel's cry. Jeremiah chapter 31, we read it on Rosh Hashanah. Only because of what she forfeited for her sister. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? There's many examples of this. And this is something, again, featured again and again in the Torah to try to get us in the mode of thinking. Sometimes things that appear to be bad are actually good once you see the full picture. In our next discussion, we're going to examine a very interesting and quite lengthy essay by Ramchal where he lays out the various reasons, like a whole swath of reasons, a whole bevy of reasons, a whole host of reasons why things happen, both good things and bad things. Now again, our goal is to not understand exactly why things happen. Only God knows that. But once we understand that there is a variety of very reasonable and logical things that could be the causes for the behavior, so to speak, that God treats us with, it won't help us to understand why a specific event happened, but it will explain a little bit of how the Almighty's process works and I think will resolve the question of the heretics. The heretics who claim, the Almighty abandoned the land, the reason why they did it, says the Rambam, is because they see disorder. Once we see that there is a system, there's lots of different reasons why bad things may happen to very good people, it will resolve this question. And as we mentioned earlier, once we do that, we could ponder other aspects of this principle before we proceed to the next principle, and that is the reward and punishment. So again, what do we have here? We're on the 10th principle of 13 principles of faith, an idea of God's total knowledge, God's omniscience. He knows it all, and it matters, and it triggers the judgment and the response, and we have the heritage don't believe it, and they've exchanged one problem for a much, much bigger one, which is a very bad idea. We have a little bit of the ideas we've spoken in the past as to how to resolve this question. Sometimes the Almighty shows us how there is order, how there is goodness, how he treats everyone well. And that's sweet, please God, we will talk again about how to have maybe a more comprehensive view of the totality of reasons, maybe not the totality, but some of the reasons, many of the reasons as to why the Almighty behaves in the way he does. A fast answer by the Ramchal. I look forward to doing it with you all next week. Please, God. Until then, as you know, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Walby spelled with a W-O-L-B-E. If you look in the podcast, in the description of every podcast, there's always the actual email spelled out. So you could just copy that and use that because I know a lot of people have emailed the wrong email address because 
Walby is an unusual name. Is it spelled with an A, with an H, with a B-Y I've seen, with a P, God forbid, that's awful, not a P, with a B as in boy. Rabbi Walby, gmail.com, Rabbi spelled with two Bs and one I. I hope to get your emails with your questions, your comments, and your feedback.